history session, lecture number three, Rabbi Blyweiss. Adam, we just touched on that yesterday. We talked about the fact that all negative aspects, including mundane things like human waste, are a result of that sin of our iniquity, of our, of our inferior state. Um, he's cursed. Hashem says that you will, you will eat thorns and thistles uh, when you go to work, meaning we're going to have to go out and make a living and it's not going to come easily, the money, and you're going to have difficulty at get the bank teller trying to withdraw cash. It's going to be all kinds of problems. You're still suffering in that, in that curse, I have to tell you. Um, you're going to have sadness is one of the definitions of itzvus in childbirth, child rearing. It's going to be what's called tsar gidul bonim all the way, all of which is, as the Kaddish Baruch Hu designs the world, midah keneged midah. Hashem doesn't punish and get kicks out of it. I mean, to some degree, I don't know if it's only the Christian God, but there is a pop culture kind of image of a Kaddish Baruch Hu as if he's some kind of maniacal villain in some, in some horror movie uh, get, taking some pleasure in watching us writhe in anguish, bah, kind of, kind of, kind of a thing, down, down, in our, down in misery. Chas b'sholom, that image is total kfira, it's heretical, God loves us, he doesn't take any pleasure in punishing us, he literally is, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it does hurt you, kid, and the whole idea of punishment is to bring us back to good, that's why he punishes mida keneged mida, which means measure for measure, it's so that we can draw connections between what, what we're enduring and what we did and try to improve our behavior. And certainly that idea that, that posits a Kaddish Baruch Hu, it's not a very logical idea either. The Kaddish Baruch Hu takes some kind of, uh, has some kind of venge, venge, revenge fantasy in getting us and watching us ride. Why in the world would he create a world and create creatures if not to help make us better? That's our idea. He, he wants to make good for us. He wants us to uh, exercise our freedom of choice for the better. And when we don't, he tries to help us around. Sometimes, sometimes he slaps us around. Sometimes he actually helps us and gives us good things as incentives. Sadly, I don't know if you're a fan of human nature, but I am uh, in terms of tracking people. We respond, to, uh, we respond more to the negative than to the positive. You know, if I tell you, good, you're coming, it's amazing, you're doing great, that might last a certain period of time. But if, I, if uh, a, patch on the, uh, a patch on the back um, might sadly go a little bit further, wouldn't it be great if we could respond to the positive more? Hashem patches Adam, he patches Chava again out of love. He does it to try to help them bring them back. This fall from grace becomes a pivotal milestone in history. For the Christian world, they, Christians being heavily theological, meaning they have a whole complex system of understanding God and how the world works. Judaism is not so theological. We're much more practical. What can we do to make the world a better place? But in Christianity, this, uh, this critical juncture in history meant that humanity was doomed and hopeless. They don't, they're not big fans of the notion of tshuva, that people have a chance of turning around and fixing their ways. What do the Christian theologians say? Humanity is hopeless. The best you can hope for in this world is to attach yourself to the Savior, to the Redeemer of humanity, the Yashka, as they like to call They don't call him Yashka. We do kind of mockingly because he's a false god. That's your only hope. Without that, you're doomed to eternal uh, damnation and the rest of it. Your only hope for salvation is to believe in, in Yashka. The Jews are much more positive. The Torah is much more positive. It says, yeah, yeah, we blew it because, you know, we got this Yetzirah and it's part of the package. The Kaddish Baruch Hu set up the world with the with freedom of choice and we're meant to exercise the freedom of, of choice. But the Jewish view actually is very, very practical and positive. You can change. This month, we're in Elul right now. 
we're winding up. It's all about breaking down and figuring out, okay, yeah, right, okay, I messed up in certain ways. Fair enough. I'm not a malach. I wasn't created as an angel. I got things to fix. Let me sit down and get down to business. Um, how do you go about doing that? Well, we get down to business. We do it in small baby steps. We don't take on the world all at once because that's uh, a not a very practical recipe for success. You want to, as best you can, slowly, slowly fix, fix what you can in your personality. Once you've fixed a few things, you basically accumulate a lot of points to the point you, you realize and you build up your confidence You say, hey, I can do that. Well, then I can do this and that and the other thing. And you build up a bunch of things till, until you have in your arsenal a whole, re, a whole series of resources to fix your life. And um, we think that it's entirely possible for any schlub to become a gunnel ador. In fact, we have lots of examples. We're going to meet certain personalities like that who are simply unimpressive as when they started out in life and they worked really hard on themselves and they became formidable human beings. Um, and that's the Jewish view and as it's always been, it stands in stark contrast to the defeatist Christian view on, on life. Adam now um, is, is it's after the first sin. I'm citing now a, a very deep brisa. It's, it's brought in the Avos Rabbi Nassan, uh, an extension of Pirkei Avos, it's brisos. And there, um, Adam is sitting out. It's the first day, it's before Shabbos. It's before Shabbos, and um, he's contemplating everything that's just happened. It's been a really eventful day. After all, he's born. It's day one of year one, as we saw in the timeline yesterday. You know, all everything that's happened, he's sinned. They've been kicked out of God, Aden. Uh, Kain and Hevel have both been born. He's got a lot, very event, event-filled. He's thinking, you know, I really blew it. I can't believe what I've come to. I used to stand from heaven to earth, and now I'm a lowly uh, creature of this planet. And suddenly something starts happening, and I have to say, I'm mean, taking a little literary, literary license here and embellishing the story, but that's just because I can. So he's, he's sitting out there, and then he's looking around, and something that's never happened before is starting to happen, and he doesn't really know what's going on. You know what, he, you know what he's experiencing? The sun is starting to set. It's getting dark all around him, and he thinks it's the end of the world. Because he doesn't know the implications of sunset. He doesn't realize there's sunrise afterwards. And so it's the first night, and he's sitting out at night, and he's davening his heart out. And he thinks, you know, the world is coming to an end, and it's all because of me. You remember those first 974 generations wiped out, and now he thinks he's the 975th gone for all of eternity. And he davens his heart out, but he's full of emunah. Kadesh Baruch you got to help me. Nighttime is a time for emunah. And you know what he sees suddenly after hours and hours of davening that first Shabbos day, all night long, suddenly in the horizon? He sees the first, the first glimmer of light. And he says, no, it can't be. You mean maybe my tefillah? My tefillah, Kadesh Baruch you know, waited for Adam's tefillah before he brought a certain phenomenon in the world? What, what, what does the Gemara Tainis tell us? What's the first, he waits, all of creation happened except for this, what is not in the world just yet? Rain. Because rain waits for Adam, there can't be rain in the world until there's, until there's tzfila in the world. He now davens and now there's a possibility for rain. There are uh, immense ramifications from that statement, go look it up in Gemara Tainis. And he suddenly sees the first glimmer of light and he thinks, wow, a Kaddish Baruch Hu is listening to my tefillah and I don't deserve it. I'm a rat, I'm a worm, I'm a nothing, and yet anyway, he's listening, and he's bringing, and then the sun's getting, the, 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 the light is getting brighter, and what does he see on the, on, the, on the eastern horizon, if not the sun rising in the air? And he says, chesed, olam chesed yivana, there's chesed. He wrote a song that day, do you know the name of the song? It says, it says, mizmor shir liyama shabbos. 
Tov lahodos l'Hashem u'lezamer l'shimcha elyon. It's good to give thanks to Kadosh Baruch Hu, like Adam, our ancestor, did that day, that faithful day. U'lezamer l'shimcha elyon to sing songs of praise to His great name. Lahagid baboker chazdecha to proclaim in the morning His chesed because we don't deserve anything and He gives us anyway. That's the true chesed. We don't really deserve this thing, but He gives us anyway. Vemunascha balilos and He has emuna. He has faith all night long. That was written then and then later brought down by David Melech in the book of Psalms and the book of Tehillim. Um, that's, that's Adam Arisham. Chesed is acknowledging that he gives even though we don't deserve. And Adam is the first and the only man, obviously, to, to, to realize Hashem's unique quality of chesed that we're supposed to emulate. After Shabbos passes, he creates the first human intervention. What does he create on Motzei Shabbos? Fire. Fire, thank you. Fire by Havdalah. That's commemorating the first fire that Adam creates. It's just after Shabbos. And what's, what is symbolically, it's a, really big, it's a really big event, because what, what, what Adam is doing is really what a Kaddish Baruch Hu invites each and every one of us to do, is just to continue the ongoing act of creation, of the Bria Sa'olam. Right? Hashem creates the world, but as partners in creation, we're meant to join the act, and Adam does. Um, you know with the invention of fire, what that facilitates? It creates the possibility for all of humanity to develop, to, to flourish. We could manipulate the environment around us. Uh, we could enable us to live in virtually any setting in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's world, all because of fire. Friday night was when he first, when he saw Kaddish Baruch Hu's chesed. Shabbos morning was when he acknowledged his chesed, when the light and the sun came up for the first time in his life. Shabbos, now after Shabbos, he creates fire. And that's why we, we like we like the fire in Abdullah. Adam's life is a little bit il, um, elusive for us in terms of understanding. He seems to have been a functioning adult in the way that he's rendered, except that we shouldn't project ourselves onto him. He was not a life form in the, in the same way that we're used to. I want to just stick on this idea of humans as inventors. Mostly that's a good thing we see already in the beginning of the Torah. We see the fact that we're supposed to be productive. We invent, and that's good. We're supposed to take a Kaddish Baruch Hu's world and, and take it to the next level. It's one of the reasons when we acknowledge that, my Sabreshis, what do we do that over? What do we acknowledge the creation? In fact, we're partners in creation with Kodesh Baruch We do this every week. Wine. wine, Kiddush, very good. And wine is a beautiful symbol of everything because wine takes the raw grapes of creation, which are purely Kodesh Baruch but you can't just... The higher level of bracha is not Brei Priya Eitz, it's Brei Priya Gofen because it takes human ingenuity, humans as inventors, to take the grapes and process them into wine. And that's really what a Kaddish Baruch wants from us. He wants us to take his raw world as it is and make it better. We do the same with the human body. What am I thinking of? Take the raw body. It's not perfect. Contrary to the Greeks, who thought it was perfect in its, in its, in its natural state, the human beings take the, take the male body, and on the eighth day, we, we, we give it a bris milah. Only when the child is nimol, is, is, has been properly circumcised, according to, according to halacha, do we actually say that's the perfect uh, male. The, the, the human form, because it takes the Kaddish Baruch Hu's basic raw form, plus add a piece of human intervention by way of mitzvahs, and then you get perfection. Noyach, ten generations later, I'm skipping intentionally, I'm going to go back to Adam in a bit, but Noyach it also carries on his ancestors' um, legacy as an inventor. How so did Noyach invent? Significantly, it's famous, it's also in the Parsha, Parsha's Noach. He made wine, but he didn't invent wine. No. Noyach invented the iron plow. He invented the iron plow. The Pasuk says, All of humanity was grateful. They say this this one, Noyach, actually, this is, excuse me, he did this at the end of Parshish Breshis. 
When Noyach is born at the very end of Parshish Breshis, so pay attention to it in a few weeks when we see this, he invents it and he's going to give us comfort because can you imagine what it was to till and plow the land before there was a uh, an iron plow? It was it was it was backbreaking. Literally, people died uh, an earlier death because they could they couldn't manage it. Of course, an earlier death back in the days meant you lived you let you lived a life of only seven hundred years instead of eight hundred years. Um, you might be able to say if you really are intrigued, Jake, you asked about this before, with lining up geology and the secular studies of the world, what they call the Iron Age, we might have a way, and there are people who do this, to line that up with Nayak's invention of the Iron Plow, and, and certainly humanity will, will uh, in leaps and bounds, be able to progress. It upgrades humanity, physical tools. They make our physical lives easier, not so that we can kick back and play video games on our stupid little machines, but so that we can free ourselves from those stupid machines in order to lead spiritual lives, to do, to do good things. Right? That's, that's the ideal form. What wound, up, what wound up happening within not so many generations is that we took our inventions and they became the goal in itself. You know, We think today of the Industrial Revolution and how we've been upgraded. We can't even catch our breath at how immensely our lives have been upgraded, right? So much, so quickly. But what's happened tragically to so much of humanity is we've become fixated and distracted with the actual stuff, with the things that they're the goals. They're not the goals, they're the means to a higher goal of spirituality. Give me a Maytag washer and dryer so I don't have to sit by the riverside doing my laundry all the time so I can have more time to sit in my tyrant. And do mitzvahs and do chesed. That's what life is all about. That's the ideal of, of humans as inventors. Um, not, to, not that the, um, the physicality should be ends in themselves. The world is still, even after the sin, entirely created for us, for human beings to suppress the evil, to, to blot out the evil, and to have goodness emerge. It's asher bara elokim la'asos, as we say in our, in our brachos, that that's what Hashem created the world to do. We're supposed to be active in this world. Create good in this world. Um, again, inventions, but inventions for the sake of bringing spiritual goodness. Lama, the Mishnah in, in Sanhedrin asks, Lama Nivra Adam Yechidi. Why was man invented in, as an individual? Shakol Ha'olam Lo Nivra Ela Bishvili. I say it in Hebrew because it all goes into your neshamas when you hear the Hebrew, right? But every person has to realize the world was created for me. Don't think that means you're supposed to be narcissistic. That like, well, you know, well, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, you guys don't exist because <laughs> the world was created for me. Thanks very much. Uh, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Let me give you a shot. I don't think this is deep shot, it's ape shot. We are individually almost unlimited potential. When I say that each of us has the capacity to be Gadol Hador, to be Mashiach, to absolutely transform the world, it's not just being, uh, you know, trying to be an inspirational speaker. I actually genuinely believe it. I think it's the shot of the Mishnah. Most of us put up stumbling blocks and don't really believe in our potential, so we kind of sell ourselves out and cop out and, and, and lead less than idealized lives. But if we really believe that the world was created for me, I have a unique potential to do specific things that you can't do and vice versa in the world. You can literally transform the universe and, and, and bring all of humanity and all the world to the next um, level level of being. What I, can, that, I, I refer to that as the theory of meta-significance. All that means is that we are incredibly significant. You have to internalize this one. You have to realize it flies in the face of what of the message of modernity. 
Um, most of the modern world has convinced the individual that we are nothing. We're just cogs in a magnificent machine, and if we should disappear, the machine will continue to function. Remember, that's what Karl Marx taught. Um, do you ever, I mean, back in my movie-going days, there was a movie in the 1930s called Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Ring a bell, right? The guy, the little man on the conveyor belt with the assembly line and everything. He is cinematically conveying this idea that the little guy is like this hapless, hopeless little fool in this big world. And also there's a great shot that sticks in my memory of um, him sitting at his working cubicle. And then he pans out. I, I hope I remember correctly. It's been a long time. But he pans out and then he sees a whole sea of cubicles. Everybody sitting in today, I can imagine in most workplaces, you know, everybody with their laptop. And then like a whole sea of hundreds and hundreds of laptops where you just feel totally irrelevant. That's what people feel like in the world. I think that's the dominant mode of being, and it couldn't be uh, more antithetical to the Torah point of view. We feel that every single person is worth a huge investment and, uh, and has to realize has, has a unique calling in this world. Um, don't undersell yourself in life. As we say, 36 Siddiquim keep the world going. Um, you remember Adam's argument, excuse me, Avram Avinu, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Avram Avinu argues with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, what if there are 40 tzaddikim in stone? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10? Every tzaddik counts, and each tzaddik could potentially reverse the divine decree. Each of us could bring geula, even though we think the news has persuaded us that it's all the politicians, it's all the war generals and the, the, the sports stars who really uh, run the world, right? It's these big movers and shakers in the world. No. It's the small guy, small person, going about their business, doing quiet acts of chesed. And I'm going to try to make, I'm going to try to, I hope the next six, several months are going to illustrate this point. We're going to see fantastic human beings who are not in it for the fame, are not in it for the fortune, are doing their great acts quietly without expecting any, any uh, payoff in this world. They're the ones who really dominate history. Marx, Karl Marx again, I'm picking on him because he's so easy to pick on. Karl Marx again would, assumed what he called the unstoppable dialectic of history. That history is like this big machine that just plows over all these, all these hapless individuals who are irrelevant. And that's why, you know, communism, the, the small guy, just kill him off if he's going to somehow be a stumbling block for the machine, get rid of him. Uh, Mao Zedong, you know, you know the history of modern China? Mao Zedong, he was the chairman, um, thought nothing. He had no scruples of killing off I don't know, 50, 70 million of his subjects because he was looking for the higher goal. That's what he was doing. Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babylon. A brick dropped when they were building this Babel. It was all about building the tower, right? When a brick dropped, everybody cried. When a human being fell, ah, it happens. Because, you know, when you're building a tower, people fall. But when the brick dropped, was somehow undermining their goal, their purpose. That was communism. That was an anticipation of communism where the individual doesn't matter. According to us, the individual, the individual is entirely important. Metasignificant is the term, is the term that, uh, that we like to say. Right. Be careful. I mean, Elon, you said that you know, it looks like that they're the ones making the decisions. So somehow, when you win a war, that somehow sets the course of human history. I think the real effect that people have on history is not at all easily measured. And it's, it's again, it's the, it's the Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was not a politician. He was a mover and shaker of unbelievable proportions. And, and has an impact in a way far beyond any of the contemporary politicians, any of the Roman Caesars of his time. Um, I want to comment on the Eitz Hadas Tovarah and talk about a certain spiritual element that was emerged in this time in history. And then I want to go, to, go on to the first murder, Kind Behevel. The tree of knowledge of good and evil at the 
mankind before the sin contained the only mixture of good and evil in the world. Evil was an absence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it didn't manifest in any known way. Adam, Chava, were created with Selim Elohim, were created in God's image. So they were pure goodness. There was no, they, they, didn't, they didn't struggle. That's one of the reasons why they were naked, because nakedness inherently is nothing to be embarrassed about. It's our associations that the nakedness bring up with sin, that's what makes us giggle and, and get all embarrassed. But the actual, they, they had no problem actually um, with intimacy. Prior to the sin, they would do so openly and, and without covering themselves because there was no sin to be embarrassed. It's the sin that's the source of, uh, of, of humiliation. When the Zohar says, the Zohar being the great work of Kabbalah, the Zohar teaches us that when Adam ate from the fruits, he actually impacted the world in ways that's, that are ways that are very abstract, very mystical. He caused an intermingling of good and evil. There was a massive confusion. I'm really doing an injustice here. I realize this is not a class in Kabbalah, but the Kabbalists have quite a lot to say on all of these topics. Huge, huge things uh, transformed in the world. Um, that I'm rendering as a simple intermingling of evil with the world, and he created a certain force that is a mixture force in the world. Does anybody know what I'm thinking of? There's a mixture force that goes out in the world. It's not the Yitzhahara, that existed before. Excellent. Called the Erev Rav. The Erev Rav, literally the mixed multitude, comes from the same uh, root as Ta'arovis, a mixture. And the Gemara de Ruvim really interesting Gemara, explains how Adam sinned and is remorseful. He's a good guy. He's a big tzaddik. He wants, to, he wants to repair what he did wrong. So as a gesture, he separates himself from his wife because he understood that the sin somehow was connected with his relationship with his wife. He separates himself from his wife for how long? 130 years. 130 years, Adam separates himself from his wife, Chava. In the scheme of his lifetime, he lived 930 years, so 130 was not so long. And that's a chance for him to make tshuva. He takes a belt made of date branches that Akash Baruch had made for him, and he puts it over to cover his body, because now he's embarrassed by that area of his body that was not a source of humiliation, now has become since he sinned. 130 years he wears that, but he makes a terrible mistake. The Gemara there describes, he didn't realize what's what, uh, that belt of dates rubs up against certain body parts and causes him to emit seed. Unintentionally, doesn't mean badly, that seed goes out into the world and manifests as demons, as what the Gemara calls Ruchin, Shidin, Vililin. Uh, it's another source of this idea. We referred very briefly to Lilith, who might have been his first wife. She's also supposed to be a result. I don't know how this all parses together. Um, as a result of that, Ruchin, the Ruchot, the spirit, Shidin, Shading, demons, Lilin, Lilith. Also, it's all intermingled, but the way the Gemara expresses it is they come out, there are the manifestation of the seed that he spills. I don't know if you know that, because I'll have that idea that um, any spilled seed that has the potential for new life, for mitzvah, for puravu, the first mitzvah, to, uh, to be fruitful, if it's spilled as part of a uh, transgression, it becomes demonic. Are you familiar with this? There's the Minah Yerushal. Anybody been to a funeral in Jerusalem? A man's funeral, I was just at one a couple weeks ago, a, a man who dies in Yerushalayim or in the greater Yerushalayim area, they have a minhag. Because Yerushalayim, you know, we're in the 
We're in the peak spiritual place in the universe, whether you perceive it or not. There's all kinds of stuff going on, demons floating in the air, all kinds of crazy things. Again, you have no idea. You'd probably not get up out of bed in the morning if you realized what I was talking about. Uh, pretty scary. Also, good stuff, too. Anyway, that's why Shabbos is so magical. So the Minag in Yerushalayim, the Chavar Kedishas do this. They say, at the, they, first, you bring the body for the um, Hespadim, for the eulogies. And they stand up and they give the eulogies. Um, and then they make an announcement. The head of the Chavar Kedisha, the burial society, they say, every descendant from this man should stay back. And that's what they do. And the other members of the family and the friends and whatever else, the burial party, go out and actually bury the deceased. But everybody else stays back. Interesting. If you don't know what's going on, you just kind of look, oh, that's weird, what's going on? Somehow, the Heber Kedisha are very spiritual people. They understand there is something goes, going on in the universe. Um, we have a tradition that the seed that was spilt in the, in the lifetime of a man um, has the same impact where it's, it's converted into some kind of demonic force. And something happens before, between the time of death and the time of burial that that demon can damage and do severe damage to that neshama before it gets pro- before the body gets proper burial in the ground. What's an antidote that can, that can ward off those demons? If you take the mitzvah seed, they override the avera seed. The avera seed was converted, the transgression seed was converted to a demon. What's the mitzvah seed? All of his, all of his uh, generations. The children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, um, they're all out there. So if they stay back, as it were, they hold back the demonic seed, and the deceased can have a proper burial and safe, hopefully safe burial. That's the Minag Yerushalayim. Anyway, related to this idea, these, as it were, these... Um, because Yushalayim has an increased uh, potency of spirituality. It's not, like, it's not like that anywhere else in the world. So it's more potentially elevated, but also potentially spiritually fraught and dangerous. The Gemara Brachos tells us a little about those demonic seeds. If the eye could perceive the demons that fill up the universe, existence would be impossible. We'd all be too afraid, uh, as I said, to get up in the morning. Who perceives the, the, all these uh, demons, the, the, all these demonic forces that are out there in the world perfectly? Infants. When we were all born, we saw all of these. Infants see them. That's why, do you ever try to catch the, get, make eye contact with a, with a, with a tiny little baby? Uh, let's say not even tiny, like a few weeks old. They're looking out all over the place, but you can't make eye contact with them. You know why? They see stuff that we don't see anymore. They're looking at things so much more interesting, no offense, than you and me. They can perceive certain things. That's why horses get freaked out, too. You ever, you ever ride horses and horses get, get really spooked? And what happens to babies as they grow up, as we grow up, we stop perceiving them as much. Children are innately very, very spiritual, and as we grow, sadly, we lose that innate spirituality, we become more immersed in the physical world, and then we get really cynical and old and all the rest of that. What's the antidote? Really obvious antidote to all that? Tyra. Right, you, do, you learn Torah, you keep mitzvahs, and you retain that, not childish. Here's a good distinction, this is one of my, I think there's a very important distinction. Don't ever be childish in life, but you should all be blessed to be childlike. I think there's a big distinction. Childish is just immature. Childlike means you've retained that spiritual wonderment and how an amazing world the Kaddish Baruch created. The Arizal tells us, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist who has uh, lived the last not quite two years of his life in Spot, tells us that all of these beings originally were elevated souls with demonic destructive capacity but potential for good. Kind of like all the rest of God's world has, has all this evil capacity but at the same time we could do good. They became mixed up and the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu helped refine them was he created reincarnation, which will begin at this point. Things can reincarnate, this is heavily Kabbalistic, 
Um, I should point out also, there is an opinion that there is no reincarnation, but it's a minority view. The overwhelming majority view follows the Arizal that says that there is reincarnation, and what's the purpose? We're supposed to constantly be fixing things. Every time we're born into a new iteration, to a new body, we have a new potential to be mitakin. Thanks, Julian, that's the expression. To fix the world in a way, as I just said, that we, we have metasignificance, we uniquely can fix and nobody else can fix. When we don't, when we blow it, one of the options in the complex world Hashem has set forth is that we can reincarnate as a new being and have an opportunity to try all over again. There are all kinds of great stories. This is not a topic in Kabbalah right now. I can do this in another another time. Let me get back to the demons. The, the, the Eruv Rav that Zev correctly guessed. The Eruv Rav will come back. They are these potentially subversive force in all of history. And they're really important. People don't know much about them. Um, the Eruv Rav will come back in many different manifestations. Yaakov Avinu tries to bring them close and it doesn't quite work. They learn in the Psukim by Yosef in Egypt. He tries to bring the Eruv Rav close, and it also doesn't work. Significantly, Moshe converts the Eruv Rav, and they come along for the ride, and the Mepharshim understands that the Vilna Gaon and the Orachim and many others understand that the Eruv Rav are responsible for every bad thing that happens to us in the desert. The Eruv Rav complain, there's no water. The Eruv Rav instigate the people to build the golden calf. They're involved with the sin of the Maraglim. They're involved with every step of the way. Anytime the Orachim says, anytime he says Ha'am, Ha'am is a reference to the Eruv Rav. There's the, when I say subversive force, they're the rebellious force. And they need to be contained. Why did Moshe try to convert them? Why did Yaakov, why did Yosef? The idea is if you can bring the negative force close and contain it and, and, and channel it to Tyra, they can do immense good. So Moshe was trying to actually bring the Geula, the, the final redemption by bringing the Eruv Rav in. It just didn't work out for him. But we have a chance to do it today as well. That's another part of, I mean, I'm getting very abstract in all this, I realize, but it's another piece of the strand of history um, in ongoing creation. We're also working today continuously to overwhelm the subversive force, to overwhelm the Eruv Rav. The Vilna Gold says that in the end of days, we're going to have three major wars, one against Esav, one against Yishmael, and one against this Eruv Rav, which manifests a lot of the time in bad midos. Um, the the Gras says there are five particular bad midos. When you see other people, or even yourself, behaving this way, it's the Eruv Rav. Do you know the five midos? It's a good one to get down, taking notes. Um, A, they are Bale Machlokis and Lashon Hara, people who make arguments for no reason, and people who spread, you know, Lashon Hara, slander. Two, road fetaivo supritsus, people who chase their desires, their physical gratification. Three, gonve, am I going too fast? Chasing after... Chasing after desire. Taivas. Three, gonve dasabrios, they deceive people. How do they do that? They, they look like they're tzaddikim when really they're just covering up, they're really not so great after all. Oh, for sure. Just because a person dresses in the park doesn't mean he's necessarily a tzaddik. So that's and people say, oh, well, I'm not going to be religious because look at all those immoral Haredi types or whatever kind of religious so person trying to write up. Just because a guy wears the costume doesn't mean he's from. You can't blame. That's just a rationalization not to be a better person yourself. You can't get off the hook just because the other guy's a jerk. You still got to, you got to be an even bigger tzaddik to counter, counterbalance his effect on the universe. Number four, Rodfei Kavod Lishman, they want honor. They want everybody to love them. They want their names to be really big. That's a manifestation of the Erev Rav. And number five, people who chase uh, money. 
all about the physical. I want now, I want, my, I want the money, I want the goods, I want the physicality. Adam and Chava have two kids initially. They have a third kid later on. Their names are Hevel and Kain. Um, they were big tzaddikim, both of them. That's not always clear in the psukim. Chazal understood both, all these early generations were on a, excuse me, on a very lofty high level. I thought they had four kids. Oh, they also had, excuse me, they also had other kids. They had twins with the daughters, right? They had, um, they had multiple daughters other, other, other as well. But what we learn explicitly about, we learn about three boys that are born Hevel, Kain, and Shapes. Right, Seth. Okay? Hevel's name, Hevel, reflects his modesty. Hevel is vaporous. That's what the word means. It's open, it's, but it, it's got a positive side because he's very self-effacing, very humble individual. But it's also a criticism. One, one interpretation in Chazal is that he has certain emptiness. He chooses... Um, to be a shepherd instead of working the land, and here's a comment in Chazal, working the land could take humanity to a higher level. So that's a criticism of Hevel. If you remember, they bring, they bring two different korbanos. Hevel brings a sheep, and Cain brings just a korban. And it's not identified exactly what it is. What is that, what is that korban? So um, if there's a sheep, what is sheep? It's the first time in history that you have a certain sin. Korban, here's one of the codes of Jewish law. Think of the word korban, kuf reish base nun. And now you can spell it out. Kuf, if you spell it out, you get up to, at the last letter of the, of the letter kuf is a fe. Face of um, Reish, base, well actually we can do a nun sofi here too. Nun. Now if you take korban, the word korban is identified in the psukim, um, and you do this code where you look at the last letter of the letter. You spell you spell fe shin tough nun. Has your Hebrew? Pishtan flax. Meaning, if you combine um, Hevel's offering with Cain's offering, you get shaknets, wool and linen mixed together. The first time in recorded history, and it leads to murder. Somebody needs to hit the low keys on the piano whenever I get to a yeah when I get to a uh, like that. Pishtan flax, yeah, linen, flax, flax, flax seed is a, is a derivative. Flax is is what they produce linen from. Linen and wool comes from this first murder. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, when Cain acts, he does it. He's sadik. He's motivated. He doesn't know. First of all, Hashem's never told him not to murder. Uh, Although that's not an excuse, we're supposed to know certain things. Um, and he perceives his brother as having been stronger and more threatening. He murders, according to one medrash, in self-defense. He thinks it's pikuach nefesh, if he murders. But actually, the Orachai Makadosh, which I'm not going to dwell on, I have another file on this, it's fantastic, and I'm going to ruin it by giving you some of the punchlines, but I, I don't have too much time in this class. Um, the Orachim has a fantastic piece in which he explains by way of the psukim that you were looking up earlier that in fact, Cain was not really the one who murders Hevel. Who done it? You know what, let me give you homework. I, I, I like a little cliffhanger. Um, go look at the psukim, and if you really want to do it, go grab our bigger red, uh, the red chumash with all the, the mikros gedolos, with all the mafarshim, and you can look in the Orachai Makados, and he spells it out. It's explicit in the psukim who really killed um, Hevel. It's in the psukim, you just have to know how to read it correctly. And it's not kind. I'm not telling you, it's your homework for tomorrow. Okay, so you get, you get to look it up. I'm not done today. So who really killed Hevel? We'll talk about that. Go look it up if you can. 
Obviously, if he's not the actual murderer, he's certainly the accomplice. He's complicit in the event. And obviously that, that happens because Hashem blames Cain and talks to him afterwards. Um, he punishes him because even if he acted in self-defense, he was swayed by personal envy. He envied his brother. It's the beginning of a story. One way of reading all of Sefer Breshis is, is, is the parable that constantly repeats until finally we get it right. What's the parable? There's an authority figure, usually a parent. In this case, it's Kaddish Baruch Then there are a couple siblings. Siblings fight. We're notorious about that. If we don't have siblings, it's with friends, it's with peers. We're always competing. That's why it's classic in human nature. We're always defining ourselves against our peers, our siblings. I'm the this one, right? And, and we're irrational about such things. Usually what happens in this constant parallel that repeats itself, and pay attention to Sefer Bracius, it's all about this. What happens is you've got the authority figure, and then you've got the older sibling and the younger sibling, and usually the authority figures favor, favors the younger sibling. And the older sibling gets jealous and does something regrettable. In this case, potentially murder. Okay, where do we have that exact dialectic going on? Here, first of all, Kain Havelikash Baruch You got it certainly by Yosef, but go back. Before Yosef, you can, you can even go before Esau. You can say on some level, Yishmael is the older sibling with Yitzchak, and Yitzchak's the preferred son to, to Avram. Certainly you got Esau and Yaakov. Certainly you got Yosef and his older brothers. Uh, you, you can even, it's a bit of a stretch, but you can even work this one in with Rachel and Leah. Right? And, and, and Rachel's the younger one, and, she, and Yaakov marries Leah, even though you know, he really loves Rachel, even though Leah, Leah is the older sister, and, and therefore theoretically is more deserving. Who finally gets the formula right? We'll leave it, we'll leave it as another cliffhanger. We'll, we'll answer both of these questions. I have a couple more loose ends, and we have three more minutes um, for today. We hold that these early generations were tzaddikim. Most of the academics ridicule earlier stages of man that again Darwinism again and we think we've evolved and we've, we've become better they ridicule primitive man as being foolish in fact these people were Kedoshim on a really hard to fathom high level what's really the Torah tells us is we've become even more primitive as we've moved on in the generations and as much as we have technology and certain know-how today on some level you can see modern humanity is sometimes the most primitive of the, all the generations that, that have come before, Chazal say, Niskatnu Hadaros, the generations have actually gotten smaller as we progressed, if we progressed at all. And we, we start with a very holy Messiah from Adam. Tomorrow, what we're going to do is we're going to trace the next 1536 years of history. It goes by so quickly in the Torah because people leave these like gargantuan, long, long lives. Right? But within, within a few generations, suddenly 1,536 years will pass. And what happens next? You have your, you have your, your timeline, the flood. So Bezras Hashem, tomorrow we're going to talk about this. But I'll comment, even though we talked about the decline and we'll talk about what caused the flood, it's a problem and Hashem expects more from us. But relative to what follows even later, they were all on a very, very high level. And if you remember that and keep, keep, keep track of that, uh, some fun, really interesting things tomorrow. We'll talk about Gilgamesh and, and Nayak and the 70 nations of the world and how so much of modern history was, met, was captured in those, uh, in those early days. Um, we'll talk about the origins of Avodah Zarah as well, a very significant, less known uh, subject. Good. Thanks for a great day.